0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Andy Coluccio, the Technical Director here at the Global Inquirer. Our host, Nico, along with the rest of our research and production team are away for Thanksgiving this week, so I've crawled out of my audio editing den to step in for this semester review episode. While we aren't finished with new podcast content for 2017 just yet, uh, we feel that now is a great time to take a step back and review some of the topics that we explored this semester. So today I'll take you through some of our team's highlights from our past set of podcasts, and we will, of course, link you to every episode in full in our description so you can watch anything or everything you've missed and want to learn more about. So with all that said, uh, let's dive right into it. So as our regular listeners know, the Global Inquirer focuses on major world trends from an international perspective, but to start off our fall 2017 series, we dove into an issue that hit us right here at home, the tragic white nationalist protests here in Charlottesville, Virginia. So, in a tale of two towns, Balthazar Marin, one of our researchers, conducted an interview with Black Lives Matter representative Mrs. Leslie Scott Jones to discuss what happened and how it relates to the University of Virginia. I'm going to start us off by playing a segment from that exchange.
1: You um you started to touch on kind of UVA's role and the role of the students um, and kind of what their role was in creating these tensions and exacerbating these tensions. Could you could you just elaborate a little bit on what what exactly their role is and what UVA and the students can actually do to kind of alleviate some of these
2: pressures
3: so as well you may not know (laughs) um, UVA received in like the 20s and 30s uh, received direct money from the Ku Klux Klan Um, so the connection to, to UVA and these racial tensions, is long-standing. And when you factor in that most students that come here kind of fall into that without even realizing it, so they fall into this thought process that, oh, I'm only here for four years, like, this isn't really my town. I'm just here, a student, and then I'm gone. It, it creates an automatic tension between the student population and the town population.
0: Jumping forward, I also want to highlight an important comment from Balthazar talking about concrete actions as a student to resist the hatred and violence that we saw in
2: August.
1: Well, I just want to emphasize something that Ms. Jones said, and it's that as UVA students, we are the ones with agency. We are the ones with the privilege, and more or less, we are the ones with money. We have the ability to enact this change and it comes to a matter of what our values are. How much do we actually care? If you're content with just, you know, posting on social media and not really taking a stand, well, that's fine. Um, At least you're doing something. But if you think there's more to life than just staying at UVA, going out to the corner on Thursdays and Fridays, then stand up for what you believe in. You know, donate an hour of your time. Donate $5. Sign up for some listservs. It can be as little or as much as you want, but as long as you're doing something.
4: Yeah, one thing that she also touched on was that even though we're only, the majority of us are only here for four years, it is, you know, a very substantive time in our life. The first time that many of us can vote. The first time that we can actually, you know, exercise our civic duty in voting and going out and trying to support a cause and yet many of us like you said are sitting behind their desks and posting things on social media and that's just not the way that college students can be going about issues of you know social justice or whatever it may be issues that they feel passionate about
1: exactly we need to get past our high-minded rhetoric and Um, Start engaging with the opposite side as well, you know, and not just trying to belittle it and frame the other side's argument, but actually seriously engaging, as well as, you know, standing up for what we believe in, because what's talk without a little action?
0: Uh, Moving on in our episode chronology this semester, we return to our usual format by examining the influence of Chinese foreign investment in Africa and its implications on both imperial and economic fronts. So here's a cut from Nico, Derek, and Katie's discussion of the construction of a multi-billion dollar continental rail line through eastern Africa.
2: This rail line is estimated to to cost $4 billion in total, um, and most of that money is being funded by Chinese lending. What really makes this unique then? I think what makes this unique is just the scale of the project it's such a huge line that is going to cost so much money and it's going to have a major impact on the economies of ethiopia djibouti and sort of east africa in general if you're a farmer in ethiopia selling coffee beans or raising cattle and leather instead of taking three days to ship your products to the port from using um, trucks on the road, it'll take a matter of twelve hours on a rail line straight from Ethiopia to the port in Djibouti. Kay, can
4: you can you talk about some of the perceptions that we have on on Chinese investment in Africa?
0: Right, but I think it's important for us to understand that you know China was in Africa's position just a few decades ago. And it's true. China has been investing heavily into Africa. And in our media, it sounds like, you know, China is taking over Africa. Like Africa is the new China. And like that's just not true because the numbers really contradict
5: those titles.
0: So later on in this episode, we interview David Dollar, a senior fellow at the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution, who share with us some critical insights into the economic elements at play here.
6: Well, I think the primary incentive is to make money. Uh, You know, China has emerged as the second biggest economy in the world, it's a big trading nation, and it's a country with a high savings rate that's now facing a lot of excess capacity in its own domestic economy. So there are not as many good investment opportunities in China as there used to be. It's natural then for Chinese firms to go out and start looking for opportunities around the world. And as I said, initially, a lot of that was aimed at natural resources. China's a natural resource scarce country. But now I think it's Chinese firms looking for market. You know, they see Africa as a young continent with a large population. And Africa's been growing pretty well for the last 15 years. Uh, you know, the last one or two years have been a, a bit more difficult. But basic trend in Africa is positive. I think a lot of Chinese firms see opportunity there.
0: In Episode 7, Commercial Warfare, researcher Nick Mortensen led us through the intersection of consumer drones and modern military tactics at strategic, economic, and technological levels. So here's one exchange between Nico, Nick, and later on special guest Dan Brown.
4: So for, for an organization, for a terrorist organization like ISIS or any sort of paramilitary organization,
7: how much does it cost to, to get your hands on one of these commercial drones? These are the ones you can buy off Amazon for 50 to $200 on the internet, have shipped straight to your door, uh, no questions asked. These are consumer models. They are incredibly cheap. And as Dan Brown said, uh, you know, the kind of drones that we operate cost between 40 to $7 million. These kind of drones cost 200 And why can't then the traditional air defense systems work to combat commercial drones? So with the Air Force... The level at which a consumer drone operates and the level at which a jet fighter operates simply are not comparable. Uh, those jet fighters are going to be thousands of feet in the air, traveling at or beyond the speed of sound, and its weapon systems are not built to handle a tiny plastic drone that's you know, in the air maybe about 50 feet up. So the Air Force doesn't really have much to do there. The Army, uh, as I previously mentioned has come to assume that air superiority will be in its favor and thus its air defense systems are i wouldn't want to say sparse but definitely lighter than other nations stingers work off locking onto a heat signature and then flying towards that. And since quadcopter drones don't really produce that much heat, it's uncertain whether or not Stinger would actually be able to acquire that target. If you were to set the, you know, heat parameter that low, the Stinger could fly into basically anything, like, you know, a hot rooftop, anything like the sun's been hitting, anything else like that. So there's the question of whether Stinger would work in the first place. We have, for the Patriot at least, we do have uh, it well-documented, as a matter of fact, that the Patriot can shoot down a commercial drone, There was an article floating around for several months of a U.S. ally that was not named actually using a Patriot missile battery to shoot down a uh, commercial drone. A Patriot battery can cost millions and millions of dollars, and a consumer drone costs $200. The economics there simply do not work. And Dan Brown also had an interesting point about radar. So let's listen to him. And you talked about detection. Can you sort of tell me more about what that means or how you would detect, you know, more conventional drones or is that kind of a – Well, radar, radar.
8: Mm -hmm. from a a very basic perspective, you're just bouncing off frequency off of a a wide area Mm -hmm. and trying to to come back and identify what it is based on the return. And – there, there are different ways. I mean, there are, there's ground-based radar. Mm-hmm. There's air radar that are um, actually in the aircraft that they're flying around. Um, all those can be used to mm-hmm. detect them. But if you have things like ground – they're flying low enough and uh, there's stuff called ground clutter, which mm-hmm. um, which is very difficult to determine. The radar return from a bunch of trees and a very slow-moving mm-hmm. drone sometimes if it's close enough to the ground. So filtering that stuff out and then trying to identify what exactly is um, – and especially with the drones being as small as they are, the commercial drones – it's not really uh, feasible to, to launch an air-to-air missile. Mm-hmm. The following week, in an episode entitled NAFTA and Trade
0: Deals Don't Axe Them Just Yet, researcher Katya Senko spoke with Chris Boyd, a Canadian lumber salesman, on the subject of U.S. tariffs on Canadian softwood imports.
9: Would you be able to explain how the tariffs hurt the American consumers?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, it's as simple as, it's as simple as... You know, the prices are going to rise. Prices of lumber are going to rise. And the American consumer is the one that's going to bear the brunt Mm -hmm. of that. Um, I think we've seen since since January 2017 where the preliminary duties started taking effect, I think we've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% increase in lumber prices in the U.S. market. And the people that have to pay for that are the people that are building houses and doing renovations. It's as simple as that.
0: Fast forwarding to the end of episode eight, host Nico Marcis interviewed international economics professor Karim Kosar, And here's a soundbite from their conversation. Yeah, I mean, well, if the nature of, of politics is
4: short-run short political gains, then won't these trade deals just continue to be hard to implement in the future?
3: It will be hard to come up with new big deals. And as we see in NAFTA, you are right, uh, we're going to run into, again, like petty issues of, of sectoral details mm-hmm. for even the things that exist. Do you think that
4: then bilateral trade deals or regional trade deals are going to become a lot more prevalent than any sort of multilateral trade deal like the TPP?
3: Um, there's not a lot of room left. We'll see. I, I One thing that can happen is right after the failure of TPP, China tried to step in and fill that vacuum. Mm -hmm. I guess it really depends on how active China can be in in trying to get countries into multilateral or regional deals with itself. Episode 9, Baron
0: Promises, examined a failed multi-billion dollar New Valley development effort in Egypt. And I want to play for you now a brief exchange between Nico and our researchers Dominic Giovanniello and Balthazar Marin on both this case study in particular and the patterns that they've observed in development efforts worldwide.
5: First of all, though, I think it's important to understand what Egypt's situation is like. 96% of Egypt's population lives in 4% of Egypt's land. 95% of the country is desert. And Cairo is actually the fastest growing city in the world. So it's important to keep all of that in mind when trying to understand Egypt's development policies for the last several decades.
4: But what I would say is, you know, obviously it's important to take into account the cultural aspects of a country. But if you look at the way in which Israel has sort of reclaimed their desert and built up development projects around a country with few natural resources and a similar environment to Egypt, why couldn't then Egypt just mirror some of their efforts in development
5: projects? That's a good point, Nico, but Israel and Egypt are very different countries. Egypt has a much larger population and a much poorer population, and it's a much larger country in general. Secondly, Egypt has had some success with Desert Reclamation. However, what really differentiates the New Valley project in Toshka is the scale. As we discussed earlier, it's a multi-billion dollar project uh, which promises to, to, to deliver Uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs and tremendous agricultural output and the fact that it isn't grounded in realistic expectations nor has it been properly conducted. Right and this is the main problem with developmental policy.
1: You have one success story and these success stories are few and far between and you have these so-called developmental experts come in and try and replicate that in different places. But they fail to take into account the cultures and the context in which they exist. And that is the most important thing when considering developmental policy. It is how the country and how the populace is going to take to these projects.
0: We return to European affairs in episode 10, Polarized, discussing Poland's new political landscape after a constitutional crisis following the rise of the Law and Justice Party and their influences on both the media and the judicial system. And first, I want to share a particularly insightful exchange between Nico and special guest Kirill Kujanikovic on the subject of state-sponsored media in Poland.
4: So is the state media always controlled by the ruling party, or is that it just happens to be the case yeah. that the state media is controlled by the PIS in this situation? Or?
10: So this is a fluid situation because, the you know, you use the word always, and this is a very recent history. Um, certainly, state media was tightly controlled under the communist era. Mm. So there had to be major reform after 1989, but there's not a lot of precedent to go on. And the history of Polish politics up until this moment has been a kind of rough alternation between center left and center right parties. There's been a, a fairly standard process of, of switching power every few years. And something that is new in the 2015 election is that PIS has an outright majority in parliament, um, which has never happened since 1989. So there is a stronger presence of one party in power, and PIS itself certainly sees state media as something that should serve the state line. In the follow-up
0: discussion, researchers Nick Mortensen and Derek Wong shared their thoughts on mass media, Russia, and U.S. politics. Here's a cut.
4: Given the current state of the media and this current divide, is there any room for cooperation? Is there any hope? Is basically what I'm asking, that the media won't continue to perpetuate these divides, not only internally, like we saw within Poland, but also geopolitically between
7: U.S. and Russia, or Western Europe and Russia. There might have been a hope for it, but with the entire matter of Russia interfering in the American election and you know various other investigations involving Russia, it's one of those instances where you really can't unring the bell. There is... Some evidence, or there is a prevailing narrative in many political spheres in the United States, that Russia embarked upon a deliberate campaign of misinformation and collusion, and perhaps interference in the American election to fight for its own interests. And that violates so many basic diplomatic and political rules and agreements that if these allegations turn out to be true to the extent that many people assert that they are, there's simply no hope for cooperation. Uh, the well at that point would be so thoroughly poisoned that I can't see for this generation, even beyond that, of there being any hope for cooperation.
2: I think a lot of it has to do with Putin's position at the top of the Russian government and the fact that he is there by virtue of his the support of an inner circle of the top levels of Russian all like Russian elite economic elites, Russian oligarchs, and the top political spheres, as well as you know the the general population, rally, sort of rallying behind Putin. I mean, I maybe I could see some hope for for reconciliation if like an opposition party one power but that's extraordinarily unlikely and even then that would be no guarantee of an actual reconciliation it would just present it might present an opportunity for a reset in relations because i think putin and his brand in the united states is so thoroughly toxic to you know people on either side of the spectrum for the most part um and it's it's difficult to establish that kind of a kind of report where the both sides can trust each other, especially after the 2016 election, the allegations therein, and even then, I think even this, even going back to Ukraine and Crimea, I think that's where it really started, where the deterioration like really ramped up again is with the Russian occupation of Crimea and the, sort of the issues with Ukraine. And that's just spiraled downwards ever since with Syria and now with the 2016 election. And to try and reverse that trend would be very difficult.
0: Now episode 11 was a big one for us here at the Global Enquirer. Our first venture into the realm of live broadcasting, we simulcast a panel discussion with a studio audience to Facebook Live. And somewhat ironically, we also covered the topic of Facebook Free Basics. As many of you know, net neutrality is, once again, a hot-button issue here in the United States because of recent announcements from the FCC. And to provide you with a global perspective on the issue, I'll now share with you a soundbite in which Nico and special guest Christopher Ali, professor of media studies here at the University of Virginia, explored net neutrality in relation to free basics.
4: Right, and another criticism that I've read is that, you know, right now the service is basically free. But in essence, it'll go from free, what they call freemium, to premium. And you, you can you can kind of see that now so if you go on like let's say jobberman's application uh, and you want to click on an application there's a little source at the bottom that links you to a different a different uh, website you click on the source and you try to go to it and it'll prompt you to pay let's say 50 cents and that doesn't sound like a lot but that adds up over time if you think about you know if you use your mobile phone as your source of internet and you're you are Strong to get to these other sites and it costs 50 cents every time, that's pretty
11: costly, especially in these developing countries. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the... And Facebook expected this. In fact, it's part of their literature that they would expect that upwards of 50% of their users of this freemium would upgrade to premium, right? So by virtue of that, it expected that this would be a paid for venture and it was not just about... It was not just about connection. They expected that that someone would be making money off of this. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, you know,
4: potentially this could break what we call net neutrality. And this has been a hot-button issue recently in the U.S., so can you just define net neutrality and talk a little bit about how free basics might break net neutrality?
11: Absolutely. So, free, uh, free. Uh, net neutrality is the basic idea that internet service providers are, are you know, in the United States would be Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, any, any company that we pay to access the internet, Cannot discriminate against the content uh, that flows through its kind of pipes, its wires, right? In other words, it can't slow down a service, it can't speed up a service, it can't charge you more for accessing Netflix and charge you uh, less for accessing Hulu, for instance. And this comes out of phone regulation. So back in the day, you know, AT and T couldn't charge you more for calling your mom than for calling your aunt. And in the same way, we've adapted this for internet service providers. They can't um, charge you more for accessing Facebook and charge you less for accessing MySpace. I mean, no one uses MySpace anymore. Um, but equally, a problem is net neutrality also encompasses the idea that companies that the platform shouldn't be allowed to pay ISPs for kind of a fast lane to customers, mm-hmm. right? In the United States, we call this zero rating. The idea that if you're a T-Mobile customer, for instance, you get Netflix suddenly that doesn't count against your data. Well, that could be. A violation of net neutrality because Netflix and T-Mobile have entered into an agreement that that doesn't count against your data. So that's a, that discriminates against other video streaming services.
4: And so, how does Free Basics fall into this uh, realm of net neutrality then?
11: Well, I mean, it's the exact same thing. Just replace uh, Facebook Free Basics with Netflix and you know Comcast with a domestic African provider, mm. right? So suddenly, Facebooks is offsetting the data surcharge. Um, of these 80 sites that Facebook has selected it would do. So um, it's it's zero rating all of these different services. But you're not even getting the full service. It's zero rating, you know, kind of a pared down text-only version.
0: Mm -hmm. Split Ends, episode number 12, explored the legacy of European colonialism in South Africa, where even after the fall of apartheid in 1991, students in the primary and secondary school systems still face racial division in the shadow of an imperial era. Here's Senko and Nico Marsich in their discussion of their own upshots from this powerful case study.
4: Um, and my most important takeaway was the, the effects of denialism in denying, you know, institutional racism, whether it be in South Africa or in the U.S., have have really lasting impacts on, on not maybe my everyday lives, but on the everyday lives of a lot of other people in the communities around us in, the, in Charlottesville, in the U.S. and around the world
9: yeah, you're totally right. And whenever Professor Knaus said that he's seen denialism now, unlike ever before, that it's it's at these insane rates. Um, so it, it kind of raises the question, where is this coming from? And so let's just talk about denialism for a little bit. And so denialism is, is pretty much um, denying a fact or a piece of imperial, empirical evidence in support of a more um, like psychologically comfortable fact. Um it's really alarming given that we're at this age of, you know, scientific discovery and um you know all of this empirical evidence readily available at our fingertips yet the the rates of denialism are are still there. And so in the context of South African education, um there are many people who claim that because of theoretically The legislation allows the integration of schools. Empirically, in South Africa, it shows that the education standards in South Africa are substandard because even though they allocate a higher percentage of their GDP than most nations in the European Union, um, they're only ranked 75 out of 76 uh, in education system out of the OECD nations.
4: Right. I mean, another pretty alarming statistic is the fact that You know, whites in South Africa make up 8 to 10% of the population, but are 86% of the top income bracket. So when you have a society that's completely, well, not necessarily completely, but largely unequal on levels of race, I'm not surprised that these inequalities manifest themselves in their education system as well.
9: Exactly. And now that we have so much information just so readily available, it's harder and harder to distinguish between legi- legitimate sources and illegitimate sources. It's going back to the girls who took to, who took upon social media. Um, it's just interesting to see who people listen to.
0: The following week in episode 13, Breaking Through the Outbreak, our producer Jeff Keating and researcher Balthazar Marin joined our host, Nico Marsich, to discuss the challenges the global community faced in dealing with Ebola. A particularly interesting subject in this episode was the discussion of organizational failures that delayed the arrival of critical aid in response to this public health emergency. And I want to play for you now a cut from that exchange.
4: And getting, getting back to the WHO, though, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that there was, you know, some degree of complete irresponsibility here. And a lot of that stemmed from sort of like a lack of cooperation between not only the UN and their agencies, but also other international organizations in the region.
1: Yeah. Actually, a few years ago, I had the pleasure of talking with Amaya Gillespie, who was implanted in uh, sub-Saharan Africa at the time of the epidemic. She was working under the UNMIR, which was the United Nations uh, mission for Ebola emergency response. She was the head of the community engagement pillar in Sierra Leone, and she kind of clued me in into how the whole system was constructed or um, or should I say thrown together, because it really was a hodgepodge effort. Um, You had an alphabet soup of organizations all trying to coordinate, but ultimately stepping on each other's toes. You had the CDC, the UNDP, uh, WHO, NIH. You had the military representatives from Great Britain and the United States. And what we were able to kind of surmise from all of this is that there was no real structure for coordination and cooperation. And it really exacerbated the circumstances in sub-Saharan Africa.
8: And just to highlight that, the way the United States actually initially found out about the Ebola outbreak was from... MSF, or Doctors Without Borders in English, um, which is a nonprofit organization that sends doctors into regions of the world to help with health. And MSF went to the United States after seeing uh, the stage of Ebola on the ground and was requesting military intervention to actually be able to combat the epidemic. When the U.S. went to the World Health Organization to request the ability to actually go in to West Africa, under the guise of public health, WHO said no because they thought it wasn't really a serious um, outbreak and that the U.S. didn't need to go and violate other states' sovereignty um, to help prevent it. And so you can see there just the detachment and the disparity between all the different uh, organizations that were involved in treating this outbreak, where one may be asking for something, but another doesn't think that's important. And it really just highlights the, the failure, essentially, on behalf of global organizations to respond to these major epidemics.
0: Finally, in last week's episode, Clean Cars, Dirty Money, researchers Derek Wong and Walter Sharon explored what special guest Alfred Montero calls the largest corruption scandal in the history of the world. And here's a few excerpts from their discussion of Brazil's Operation Car Wash.
12: What's interesting is also it, it's also the case that because this this was a cartelized process, the corruption was in the bid; it was already baked into the price. So if the guy's in ch- the guy in charge of the budget signs off on the price, that that license goes to the directorate of Petrobras. So there are people above Costa. Who supposedly engage in some auditing of these bids, but be, you know the the bid that wins is the lowest bid, but it's still overpriced. The auditors don't know that because supposedly the market has spoken, but the market was the market was fixed. So this is, I mean, it's quite ingenious. It's quite ingenious. So when we say, hey, this is Brazil, it's not just the political parties it's the companies it's the market and you can have entirely transparent a- and powerful systems of oversight as as Petrobrás had and still has there are a- a courts of auditors in the Brazilian Congress and you know they're looking at the same data and they come to the conclusion that the market has spoken so where is the corruption the corruption is in the structure of the thing, and that's why I was able. That's why they, they were able to take as much as they took. I mean, we're talking tens of billions of dollars. This is the largest corruption scandal in the history of the world that's been revealed. But
4: bringing us back to the theme of corruption and um, and how political institutions respond to systemic corruption, you know, like what can be done, like what can
2: be improved. I think what we can learn from it is uh, the idea that when you have sort of weak institutions of government and a political system that sort of encourages or requires a certain level of corruption to function as Brazil's political system historically has at least for the past couple of decades, um you need to strengthen institutions of government, especially independent institutions of government. so, having the independent prosecutorial system I mean you know the workers party when they came into power one of the things they did was strengthen the uh, independent prosecutorial power uh, they and the prosecutors elected their own attorney general and this attorney general ended up going after Lula da Silva who is the former head of the uh, workers party um, the party very party that inst- instituted the reforms that brought that person to power so you can see that, you know, having these independent, independent systems, independent judiciaries uh, systems, like Judge Sergio Moro, who's been super critical in the in Operation Lavapiato, that is what ends up leading to uh, ends up leading to convictions for corrupt politicians and corrupt business people. That is sort of the crucial aspect uh, necessary for a, for a bribery and corruption free state.
4: Yeah, and I think um, it's especially important for other countries to look at this investigation and kind of think about what their future could look like if something like this would come up. And I think it's in- incredibly uh, important to kind of predict that this will kind of happen, especially in lieu of the Paradise Papers, um, which kind of gave a certain amount of scale to how widespread corruption in general is. So basically, you can assume that no one is exempt from possible corruption charges um, that's going to take over their... Uh, relationships between businesses and their politics.
0: So now that you're up to speed on our work this semester here at the Global Enquirer, you may be wondering what we've got coming down the pipeline. And I can tell you that next week we have a fantastic episode scheduled on the subject of immigration, specifically on the border of Mexico and Guatemala. So definitely check back next week for that. And if you don't want to wait that long for more Global Enquirer content, we have linked to you every podcast that we've discussed in this episode, so you can go back and enjoy the full context of each soundbite that we played for you here today. And if you come across any topics that we've covered previously that you think are worthy of us revisiting in a future podcast, please, please let us know. And on that subject, be sure to stay engaged with The Global Enquirer on social media, SoundCloud, and our website so you never miss a new release. And with all of that said, we'll close out today's semester interview podcast. I'm Andy Carluccio, and we look forward to seeing all of you next week right back here at The Global Enquirer.